Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast, here to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus wherever you are and in whatever you're going through. I'm your host, Jez Field. Well, I had the privilege in today's episode of doing what I think is discover and uncover an absolute gem and gift to us in the church. As I met on location in the beautiful Ashdown Forest, child and adolescent psychiatrist Chris DeFriend. Chris is now working on an inpatient ward among 14 to 18 year olds in Sussex and talking to her really did feel like a discovery. She has an incredibly agile mind, she's very empathetic and displays a genuine sensitivity to the spirit in the things that we talk about and in the topics we covered. Chris combines a love for God as well as a professional expertise And God willing, I'm hoping, I'm sure that at some point in the future, we'll be able to have her back onto the podcast, especially since the area of care that she represents is of growing significance and importance to us. Well, let's jump into the conversation now as Chris explains what makes psychiatry among adults different to that working with young people. I hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah, huge. the the development element of children just adds a whole other dimension and because they because they have so many systems around them there's so much more to it so they live within a family or with carers and they go to school of some description and um they so you have to liaise with so many other agencies you have to recognize um that they need education ongoing that they can't you know they they actually still need their brains stimulated they need to um be connected with their communities they need to stay connected with their families and all of that is a a massive challenge but also the brain itself is just a moving target um because right in the middle of that age range that i talked about they hit puberty and that changes well, every parent knows that changes everything. And um, and they're facing challenges that they didn't face when they were eight. And those challenges are even worse for this generation, even more detailed, even more um, demanding and pressurising. So adults tend to come on their own to a clinic appointment. They might bring a relative, um, but it's far less joined up. And also adult psychiatrists tend to focus on what they see in front of them necessarily just because of pressure in services whereas with children if you don't understand the why of why they're seeing you then you're wasting the time really so we take a lot of time to understand a young person and their family and um and go into things in detail because only then can you really understand how best to help and get alongside Mm, well i'm looking forward to coming on to talk about that because we hear a lot about the crisis of mental health among children and young people um but let's back up a little bit i guess and find out a i guess how you became a christian and then b whether or not there's much tension between your faith and your profession and some of the the just challenges from not necessarily from an institutional point of view but from a just a, a medical or scientific point of view so but first of all let's how did you have, you have you grown up as a christian when did you become a believer let's start with that one Okay, so um, yeah, my mum took me to church when I was little, um, and um, but I wasn't a Christian, and I had a little grace moment when I was age about 13, nothing really came of it, but I was aware of God's love and something to do with sin, but not really, it didn't really land, um, and it was only really after we'd had our 
second child um, that we moved in next to a church and I remember standing outside the church and meeting the vicar and I'd actually gone to recce how bad the traffic was on Sundays before <laughs> I bought the house. Okay. <laughs> As I thought, this could be a real disadvantage to the location of this property if there's just church goers everywhere. It'd be awful. But um, anyway, he said to me, do you go to church? And I said, I did. I don't. I might. <laughs> and um, they ran a Christianity Explore course, which is kind of like Alpha. And... Um, and my husband and I had reached a point in our marriage when things were, um, had come to a bit of a head actually, and God was clearly intervening and doing something. And so we both um, got a babysitter and came. And I, we just went through the Gospel of Mark, really straightforward. We went through the Gospel of Mark, and in that process, um, everything came alive. The word, I'd read the Bible, I never understood it was all pointing to Jesus. I didn't understand it was more than stories. It didn't lodge in my heart. But something happened in that series of sort of 10 weeks that it just came alive. It became like 4D, really. And and I remember these conversations. I still have a visual image of me um, undoing the washing machine at like three in the morning because my husband and I just couldn't stop talking about God and life and stuff and I can remember just thinking what is it that feels different in me and I felt like my blood had been replaced by champagne it was the weirdest feeling I had bubbles inside me and for years I thought what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit without clocking that that was my own personal baptism of the Holy Spirit and um, so yeah I made a commitment there um, there and then really and was baptized by full immersion Probably about a year later, um, when I went to my vicar and said, I know you don't do this here, but it says it in the Bible, and I really will have to go and do it in the sea if not, because I can't really do the other stuff, and it's got to be the Jesus way. And he um, borrowed an airfix kit of a baptism pool from another church, and they plugged all the holes and the leaks with church tea towels in the way that Church of England only can. And um, I was baptised by full immersion, which is the most loving thing of my church that they could have done for me. Yeah, I love that you were <laughs> coaching your vicar on what he should be doing. He was a fantastic, fantastic man who gave me huge amounts of wise guidance and he went with it and loved it. He loved the fact that that's what we were going to do. And two of us got baptised at the time, so it's fantastic. Well, and so has were you a medical professional at this time? Um, yeah, so I'd gone, I was in the middle of kind of general adult psychiatry training. I'd gone off to do a bit of research at the Institute of Psychiatry. I was looking at the why. I was looking to try and get involved in people's lives earlier to try and catch things earlier. Um, but I was doing a bit of pause as well to have some children and enjoy being a, a wife and a mum. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I was working part time. Um, my husband was a really busy GP um, and yeah God kind of arrived in our life I think he'd been knocking for quite some time but we'd had our ears kind of stopped up um, but we woke up to him at that point and um, yeah it's been quite an adventure ever since really yeah it sounds like it I love that description of champagne being your blood being replaced with champagne <laughs> yeah. um, so it must have did you feel in the early days when you were wrestling with Christianity that there was 
a tension inherent between psychiatry or the medical profession and Christianity? Because sometimes people talk or, or maybe just at a common level think as though there is because the sciences are dealing with explanations, Christianity deals with explanations, but they don't seem to fit together. What was your journey in trying to reconcile those two things? I think it was more of a personal journey than necessarily related to the science side of things because I was quite a think well I am still quite a thinker I I can be quite cognitive and quite um like I have big feelings too but I sometimes I had to work hard in my face to disengage my brain to get past my brain or to um to stop thinking and stop in the presence of God and so for me it was more about how do I let the Holy Spirit um, fill me and change me? And and I guess it was less about, I think the science and the psychiatry bit came later when I started to understand more about spiritual things. Um, whereas when I first started out as a Christian, um, I knew that there was more to know about the Holy Spirit and so my journey with the Holy Spirit was um was a kind of a individual personal journey because it wasn't really it was, wasn't really preached about as much in the church I came from so I'd sit in the car and I'd say to God I really want to pray in tongues it says in the Bible that you do that kind of stuff so I'm I really want to do that and I would sit there just before I went into the gym just trying <laughs> and I know other people would just do it and it happens in an instant it wasn't like that for me it was a step out of vulnerability and God met me and gradually time went on and and it started to happen and and I kept thinking there's more I know there's more the Holy Spirit brings a whole new something I know and I know I'm not living the life that it says in the Bible and God kept sending these people to this church um, and there were many Holy Spirit people and filled people in the church um many many prayerful people and the whole church was full of loving people it was the most amazing place uh, but he kept sending these people who were full of the holy spirit and they, they they'd say the wackiest things to me and i think i just about managed to squash it all down and think no no this is it and then they'd come and talk to me about wacky stuff like personal revelation from god and and him talking to you and and all the things that i kind of did but I didn't know whether I was allowed to have happen. So, so my so my journey with believing just thoughts and the real world and the science and that stuff started at that point because God was God would say stuff to me and would reveal stuff like give me prophetic words. He used to give my mum because still gives my mum prophetic words even when she didn't really know what they were. And so I so I started thinking there's so much more. And I would say that that has, has made it okay to be in a science world because science, there's a lot of truth in science. Like God reveals truth to scientists. That's what he delights to do, isn't it? He goes, hey, look, look, this, this thing kills bugs. Look on mm. that agar plate now. And he delights to reveal beautiful solutions mm. to the things we have through the fall brought into his world and I just love the fact that he delights to reveal those things so I've never had a conflict about that because God's the best scientist God's the best psychiatrist 
Like, he's the best everything. And therefore, it's taken me a while to fully let him in and realise that actually I can fully let him in and it's totally okay to let him be in control of my psychiatry, even though the rules might suggest otherwise. But it is actually the best thing to do. Mm. So in terms of science, I find him in it. I find him all over it. And when there's an evidence base, I love the fact that you can tell he's got in there and tweaked the way it's developed or informed or inspired the way it's developed. So I see him in lots of that. Mm. But in terms of science, um, the truth is you only have to see what's affecting the young people today to know that the science has run out of answers a long time ago. The medicines don't work so well in teenagers. Nobody wants to give medicines to teenagers. And if they do, they should really think about it, um, like I am a lot now. Um, they need bigger solutions. So in terms of conflict, I think the world is crying out for a different approach and perhaps more, well, even in physical medicine, you'll notice they're talking about exercise, they're talking about mindfulness, they're talking about pe people being aware that their body keeps the score from past trauma. There's, there's an awareness that being purely medical doesn't answer enough of the questions anymore. So I think the world is open to so much more than it was. Wow, that's brilliant. Sorry, long no, answer to a no, really big question. <laughs> so you you said in those early early months of exploring Christianity that you realised you you can't, you described yourself having to to stop thinking, but you you didn't you don't obviously mean stop critiquing rationally no. um, phenomena that you see. Help people who may have heard that phrase and thought, oh, that's yeah. exactly what Christians do. They disengage their brain. Yeah, <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? Because you, you obviously find you seem to be advocating a much more holistic embracing of God's world that isn't purely down to the, the Petri dish, but is broader than that. Yeah. But um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's really. Um, yeah. Because I, I think when Paul talks about the fact that that nothing goes part, nothing disengages your brain. When you're speaking, praying in tongues, you're still in control. You're still really clear on, on your thoughts going alongside it. I think it was just that. And I suppose maybe I'd, I'd add a few sentences to that now in my understanding in that. Um, I can remember when people first prayed for me at Jubilee Church and they kind of talked about my head kind of getting in the way, my thoughts getting in the way. The, and what having done Freedom in Christ now and led Freedom in Christ, my understanding would be that actually my brain is active. I'm, I am a thinker but and, and I don't stop thinking. I sometimes wish I could, but I don't. And But there's something about recognising how much of what you think is past rubbish that you've believed, lies that you've believed. And so you can come into a situation and think, I can't do this. This won't happen to me. God won't want to connect with me. Um, I won't be able to do this job. Mm. All those sort of lies that we believe. And, and therefore, for me, I've gone from a process of thinking that the answer was to be able to switch off my brain. And the answer is probably more, be still and know that I am God mm. and stop with him and rest in him and allow him to take that and also testing out my thoughts taking captive my thoughts and actually testing them against what I believe in the truth that I believe and so it's a far more rigorous process really now than it was 
so I think I kind of went round it in the wrong way but God in his mercy took me on a journey that said you do think and your thoughts are important here's some bright white light and fresh air that I'm going to pour into your brain and <laughs> it will be different yeah. and that's what so it's kind of a, when you say what, I, what I'm hearing is um, let go of your preconceived ideas and allow this new bright white fresh air light to educate you and to guide you because if we, if we approach everything with all those cynical skeptical thoughts of our past then then actually when that confronts the reality of God is and God is speaking yeah. then we are um, yeah we're doing God a disservice we're yeah. almost blasph- blaspheming God to say I'm going to hold you against my standard of thought yeah. rather than allowing God to be God and to uh, almost go on that new journey of okay faith is a form of rationality and a way of thinking we're not blind faith it's faith based on the person and character of god yeah yeah i think that at the same time i had to take a step of faith and and my my thoughts going round and round and the lies that i was believing made it really hard to take that step of faith so for me i when god stepped into my life and did what he did there was no questioning it, that it was so powerful and so amazing and so loving that, and the gospel became so real that the step of faith was relatively easy to take. But it is still a step of faith. And now I have so much evidence that is indisputable to back up my step of faith. But I don't, I don't stop thinking, I can't stop thinking because of the questions that kids ask me of families ask me of what I see I have to I have to it's a ongoing process isn't it to carry on like God gave us our brains he gave us our hearts he gave us our souls spirits it's an ongoing process and and I I don't ever need to disengage from my brain but sometimes I do need to quiet it and I do need to sit down with a psalm and that's my antidote I can be full of so many other people's stuff in a day and so full of what I've seen and the awfulness of so much of it and the amazingness of it too. And my head can be so busy and then I sit down and I read a psalm and it changes everything in a moment. And I don't disengage my brain for that. My brain is refreshed by that. My brain is renewed by that. My brain is redirected by that. Um, But I'm not brainwashed. I'm not... I'm not stopping being a scientist. I don't need to be. God doesn't ask me to shut down any part of me. He just gives me the freedom to know more of what is lie and what is truth mm. and what is old and what is new. And I imagine in, in your role as well, you, you're probably more aware than most how the brain can trick us and the lies that it can create or even the fantasies and delusions that it can create. Mm. And so talk to us a bit about maybe some of your experience of ways that the brain malfunctions in the way that it presents reality to people, but then also how you make sure that you're not deluded either, um, which, yeah. again, non-believing people would, would say that regularly about Christians, oh, you're just deluded as well, but you're, you don't sound like a, a deluded person. You sound quite rational and you're, you're aware of the you know, potential to delusion, which perhaps is a sign that you're not deluded. I don't know, perhaps you can help me understand some of that. Yeah, I think, um, so a delusion, just to, I got, you can't have a psychiatrist without the occasional definition <laughs> popping up, but a delusion is a false belief held with the fixity of a, of a true belief. So 
if somebody has a delusion that they are a superhero or a delusion that they are being poisoned, they believe it just the same as I believe I had a smoothie for breakfast, and I did. But they would believe it with that full sense sense of conviction. And um, and I guess there are lots of um, it's a spectrum, isn't it, up to a full delusional belief, and then there are other. Um, bits we might talk about the distorted body image that we see in anorexia where people look in the mirror and they see a lie of what they said that they see that they're overweight when the truth is that they are not and so there's many ways that our perceptions and our thoughts can be shifted and changed and that can be about the filters that we gain through life that can be added to by chemical imbalances by taking drugs that alter our way of thinking and perceiving um, it can be um, hugely changed by people who have standing in our life, speaking stuff over us and that shifting the way we see things. And um, and it can be fueled by fear, by anxiety, by anger. We all know how we can feel, feel differently at one point or another, depending on what's just happened before. And so... Um, what when when we look at cognitive behavioural therapy, for example, we know that if we look at thoughts, beliefs and actions, that if you change just one part of that cycle, you can change all three. And and so that's not people would accept that, people would understand that. Um that thoughts can change. What I don't think I think there are two things. I think that um people often think that because they have a thought it's true. And I think we're almost grown to think that way, certainly in this society, that if you think something, so if you think, um, I can't do this, that makes it true. And it's really hard to challenge that. And so a lot of the, um, and so a lot of the young people I see will have beliefs that are really holding them back, like I'm not safe or um, I'm not loved or... Um, and some of those things will will be true in a physical sense in that they might not have received the love they deserved and they might not be safe. But there'll also be things that they believe that that aren't based on truth. And one of the things that, you know, you do in those interventions is to to help them challenge that and look at the evidence for it in quite a scientific sort of way. Um, but another thing that I think is really important is that feelings, um, certain people have brain wiring that means that they experience feelings in a really big and powerful way and we all know people in our lives or we might ourselves know how it feels to have anger swamp our body really fast with little or no warning or um, panic or guilt or shame hit us really fast and hard and because that makes our body respond in such a powerful way we can feel like that's in charge of us and that that's derailing us and and the trouble is that the more that happens, the more we start then avoiding those feelings and we, we start seeing them as these powerful agents in our lives and we start organising our life around them. So people might um, reduce what they eat or start checking things or um, start shouting at family members or hurting family members to try and deal with the feelings inside that are really big that they want to make go away. They want to shrink because they're so difficult and they swamp their whole body. And so one of the things that I think is amazing is when people learn that 
God is sovereign over feelings and God gave us feelings as engine warning lights, as gifts that help us know when the edge of the cliff is too close or instinctively know that something's just not quite right and we need to move away or we need to notice what's going on. And and I think when the Holy Spirit takes that and moves that forward, we get discernment and we get revelation and we get all sorts of things that help us come alive and respond to our environment and to our God. Um, but one of the things that God taught me personally was um, when I was suffering with some um, depression historically, um, I had particularly low mood and um, it had gone away. I'd had some medication and it had gone away. And, um, and then one day um, it came back and I remember sitting in the car and I felt absolutely dreadful. And I turned to God and he said, am I bigger than your feelings? And I, like, I, I didn't hear an audible voice, but I knew it was God speaking. Um, and I said, yes. And in that instant, it dissipated. And it was the most powerful demonstration to me that I can feel like that bad. And then God can change that. Now, I'm saying that having had a six-month period of depression before that and needed medication to shift, but God took me through that journey and then wanted to show me about the gift of emotions and about where they sit in his hierarchy. And so one of the things I love seeing is when people get are able to stop being numb and stop feeling but not avoid their feelings and not organise their life around their feelings. What I mean is that we are whole people. And God designed us as such. Mm. And we need to be able to have him as Lord over our feelings and our thoughts. Um, and have the freedom that comes with knowing knowing the truth of that. Mm. It's such a freedom-making thing. I think that's really important because I do think we're in a tradition that has so emphasised the thinking aspect of our humanity. Almost at the denigrating of the other aspects of our full humanity, and that's where uh, in my conversation with Johnny Miller on the arts, he would draw that out again. No, no, we need to embrace the will of God's world, and mm. and in your illustration there about using medication in the one instance and God doing something supernatural in another instance is perhaps going back to your earlier point that mm. medication will and science will get us so far, but there is something much more to reality than just what you can see under a microscope or what you can understand rationally. Yeah. And I think that's really helpful Absolutely. kind of things that you're kind of paths that you're laying for us yeah. to understand and to, to help us get access to. Because just like God helped when we needed penicillin, he helped when we needed antidepressants too. He, he comes in different ways to help us, to rescue us, to save us, to comfort us. And so I think that, I love it when God does supernatural healing and I pray for that. Um, and I love that he heals us through psychological interventions, through counselling, through um, medication, through hospital stays, through whatever is needed at the time it's needed. Mm. And sometimes he really likes to use things like those to help us see where we, what we've been missing and what we can. And so for me, he took me from medication, but he then showed me how to rebuild my Jenga tower, if you like, in truth, in a way that I, I don't now need medication. But he kind of, if he hadn't shown me with the medication how low I was and 
how much joy there was out there, then I, yeah, or how, how much happiness, I should say. Mm. Joy is different to happiness. But how much happiness there was out there, I just I just didn't know. And then I knew what I was looking for when he rebuilt the Jenga Tower. I knew why he was doing it. And I was welcoming of him restructuring the lives that I believed and replacing them with truth. Mm-hmm. It's become a bit more about me than the young people I serve. But... <laughs> I'm finding this really fascinating. I'm really appreciating it. So uh, did you say, did you mean to say then that, that medication um, bridges gaps in our Jenga Towers to make us more stable for a season until we've learned to build those gaps ourselves in the way that we think and understand our world? That was personally how it happened for me. Okay. There are other people who will be like, just like somebody with diabetes who needs insulin. Obviously, we pray for them to be supernaturally healed. We don't then say to them, don't take your insulin if you haven't at this point been healed. We say you take your insulin. And so if someone has chronic brain chemistry dysregulation that causes psychosis or or um, depression or anxiety of course we would say you use whatever's available to help you function to help you um, engage with God to gain engage with people in relationship that's what's so amazing is that God gives us all of those things as part of a well just his abundance really in terms of knowing where we're at so Mm. for some people there might need to be a lifetime on medication because their brain chemistry is that's the way it is and and we keep praying for healing and we keep asking for that but i would never say to them stop your medication and in fact one of our elders when i um finally stopped my medication turned around and said chris you do know that god will love you on medication or off medication um thank you matt hoys and it was wisdom it was real God wisdom, and it was true, and that is totally true. So I can, I speak of it because I think it's important to own mm. my own frailty historically and currently, um, and to be honest about it, it's not them and us. I'm not a them and us psychiatrist anymore. God saw through that and helped me through that. So um, it's different for everybody, and God has a plan for everybody, and God has abundance for everybody, mm. and that comes in different forms. That's really helpful. And actually, I remember hearing Dr. John Wyatt, who I think was a, an ethicist, and he said he had a, a psychotic episode, but prior to that, had divided the world into strong and weak, and he was strong, and it was his job to help the weak oh, until gosh. he realised his own frailty and how everything, our health, exists on a knife edge, that at any moment we could find ourselves in desperate need of medical assistance mentally and needing um, sectioning because of that. And it doesn't mean you doesn't mean that you're weak and someone else is strong. Yeah. It's just the natural rhythms of life on a fallen planet yeah. with the challenges that we face that can at any moment break us and change our state. Yeah. And um, we know there are biological factors in many of the illnesses that I get involved in treating or get involved in assessing. And it's really important not to neglect the fact that we know there are genetic predispositions, there are neurochemical predispositions, and all of those things are true. But what, what's different about the brain compared to, say, the lungs is that the brain is far more complex. The brain design calls me to worship, and I only know a fraction of it. And so when you put a drug in somebody's body that goes to their brain, it, it can't just affect one receptor. There's too many types of receptors in the brain. There's too many different connections. There's always, so that's why medication does sometimes have side effects. And, but it also means that um, it's only ever going to be one part of the solution. Um, 
brains are complicated brains um so you can have a gen- genetic predisposition to something but never get ill it all depends on the other parts of the jigsaw happening happening to coalesce and so when you're helping people you have to look at the jigsaw you can't just look at the genetic predisposition you've got to look at what other things that are are happening in this person's life and heart and head and body that are contributing to them feeling like they do right now or struggling that they are right now it's all about a jigsaw rather than one single answer mm, which is i suppose what you're saying earlier when you're saying that um, working with young people is so much more complex because there are so many more moving parts the brain's yes. a moving target and i guess because of something like neuroplasticity our brains are presumably a lot more malleable than the, a lot of the rest of our bodies so can change which can give us hope that they can change at any moment uh, is, is that something you've seen professionally people's yeah brain chemistry changing for a lifetime that can really set them free and change their experience of reality yeah i mean with children neuroplasticity is another one of god's mercies massive mercies it gets me so excited we all get really excited christian or not about neuroplasticity because just help us understand what that is yeah just going to say um effectively if you um stop using certain neuronal connections in your brain by not thinking something or not doing something then they will die off and not be used so much and not fire up so much whereas if you do something regularly um, again and again even if it's quite hard to start doing that your brain connections will start firing stronger new connections will be made so when i talk to young people about this i'll say when you and sorry this is a bit might be triggering for some people to talk about what we're talking about children and the mental health surge at the moment so we all know that a lot of them have been affected by suicidal thoughts for example so when i'm talking to them about um, how do we help you not think those thoughts because sometimes they get to a point where life's starting to move forward still feeling quite ambivalent but these thoughts are still popping up because they've got this neuronal pathway that kind of does the thought without them even triggering it very much it's a habit as well as having been fueled um, by by huge amounts of understandable reasons often but when those reasons start to change you need the thoughts to try and change so I talk about it being like in your brain there's a path and it's it's kind of really overgrown and there aren't many signposts on it but you kind of know it's there and as soon as you start walking on it the grass will start dampening down and um and you'll see that there's a bench and that there is a signpost and bit by bit as you walk down that path in your brain of thinking different thoughts healthier thoughts that pathway will start to emerge and then it will start to somebody will go down it with a lawnmower like and it will be clearer and then and then you'll notice that actually there's flowers planted down it and and you'll be so used to going down it that it'll be your special place to go down and and actually the path that was the suicidal path is the one that will get overgrown but to do that you have to actually choose to think that thought you have to change your will and it's of great interest to me that one of the dialectical behavioral strategies we used is um, willful hands and willing hands and um, and and so the idea is that when you um, when you change the posture of your body from here to here it sends a message so cool God, so cool. I literally start talking about the brain and the way it works and the way God designed it. And I want to worship it out loud because it's flipping awesome. Mm. But basically, when I change my hands from here or here to here, 
It sends a message to my brain that changes the feeling I'm feeling. That's from a clenched position to an open position. And I remember Simon Elliott at um, Jubilee, he used, to, he used to be our lead pastor at Jubilee Church, saying, even if you don't feel like it, if you're able to open your hands to receive, then it makes a difference. And he was, yeah, he was well before my time on that because it's true. There's something about changing your body posture, smiling changes, and, and it sends a message to your brain, releases the chemicals, and actually that state becomes far more likely to actually happen in your brain as well. So what I say to young people is, you know, when you feel like this, and I can remember feeling like this as a teenager, so hungry inside, so wound up. But if you can literally just move one finger, Something happens and there's a shift. And if they can make that shift like that, then you can make a shift to go, I, I'm going to choose a different path. I'm, I'm so scared to choose that path because I've known suicidal stuff. It's like horrible old slipper that I've worn and worn and worn. And it's, I'm so used to it. And there's security in it because everybody knows that I need them and I need help. And everybody knows that life is not okay. And if I go to this path and I start trying to mow this path and... Find a way down this path, which is maybe life could mean something. Maybe life could be different. There's a real risk that everybody's going to leave. Service is going to leave. My family are going to go back to work. Everybody's going to think everything's okay. And actually, this is new stuff. Choosing new paths in your brain, especially if you're doing it without the Holy Spirit's help, is really hard. So so it, it takes courage and it takes a step of, kids will talk about taking a step of faith. Even when they're not Christians, they will say those words. A leap. Mm-hmm. And, and it's that bit where you have to choose different. And neuroplasticity, especially with teenagers, because their brains are so much younger and they're going through a massive prune anyway. Not prune like churches prune, but prune as in, like we talk about pruning a heck of a lot. But um, the idea is that different bits of the brain connections just get lopped off in teenager years. Mm-hmm. And the brain gets flooded with sex hormones. And that's why they act a little different during that phase. So there's a huge amount of flux. So it's a bit like while things are in the move, you can make big move changes and they take more effect than perhaps me in my 50s. Actually, my brain is going to take a little bit longer to change unless the Holy Spirit gets involved because I'm, my plasticity is less, less active. Less malleable. Yeah, but we still know that people who have strokes can still... Yeah. use different parts of their brain to compensate even at my age so we know that neuroplasticity is lifelong but obviously as you start getting age-related decline it's going to be a, a bit less yeah. um, dynamic so oh an amazing message of hope to people in yeah. their teenagers yeah yeah well we talk in freedom of christ that you that if you speak truth over yourself for 40 days psychologists have said that that's how long it takes to change the way you think mm. and i'm i've always struggled with being attentive enough to do it for 40 days but it makes sense to me that actually it would take that long because you've learned something over more than 40 days Mm. if you've spent a childhood of listening to a lie then it's going to take a while Mm. and then sometimes god does that lovely divine fast forward and just inserts it into your heart and it blossoms and you're off so i love that illustration of um of body language change unclenching your fist to, to bring about neurochemical changes, mm. um, which um, which I can understand. Help me, uh, because I think it is a, a relevant, as you say, a, a painful and tragic example, but very relevant people are aware of it, talking about it a lot, the 
the um, the pain and the tragedy of wrestling with suicidal thoughts. How does changing your body language change your thought, or or is that just an illustration of the will that's required? So, what would some of the what would some of the mental will and effort be as an example of how someone would change one train of thought? Because we all know what it's like if someone tells you not to think something, it's all you can think about. Yeah. So what are some of the, the tools that you help yeah. people with? The, the, so the idea of the willful and the willing hands is just to get that trigger point of when they realising that we can make a different choice. But the truth is that my experience with young people is that before they can think about changing thoughts like that, they have to they have to know that they are understood and they have to understand themselves a bit they don't have to understand everything but they need to know that they're not complex that they're not challenging they need to know that they're not a mess they need to know that they are acceptable that they can come as they are um, they need to know that even if they make no changes they would be fine not fine as in their life isn't fine Mm. but they are acceptable as they are because there's something about um and this is again dialectical behavioral therapy which um interestingly enough was designed by a lady called Marsha Linehan who had a experience with God where he taught her about acceptance Um, and she took the therapy she was designing which was mostly about change and she added acceptance and she said if you don't allow both to be true at the same time and dance between the two, people will never take the risk of letting go of suicidal thoughts. They have to know that they are accepted and loved. And they and, and that's true at the same time as their life is so tough that it can't stay this way. And, and there's something about if you know you are loved and accepted, you can take the risk, you're secure enough then to take the risk of making change. So a bit like a toddler sitting next to a caregiver and the toddler looks at the caregiver and looks at the toys and kind of tries, should I go, should I go? And and a child who is not securely attached will not risk going Mm. or will go and just not be connected. It's the same with teenagers and a lot of these teenagers have had that process as a toddler affected. So it's even harder for them to feel secure and safe. And so... We don't want them to stay wrapped up in cotton wool in a hospital, secure and safe. We want them to learn what it's like to feel secure and safe inside. Mm. And what we can do in the secular world for that is for them to know that we don't judge them, that we that we care enough to listen, we care enough to understand and to get what it's like, not using a psychiatric terminology and getting them to fit. So what I'll say to, to young people is that I don't... well. I said to try and train these psychiatrists is you've learned about mental state examination, you've learned about textbooks. Okay, almost chuck that out now because what I what you need to understand is what it's like to be inside that person's head and heart. And if your terminology doesn't fit them, it's useless terminology. And if you ask a child about low mood, many of them will look at you completely blankly or will try and answer you in a way that they think is helpful but it won't actually help you understand how they're feeling. For some, it will be that they, they sit there and every day they have a pressure on their chest that means they just can't face life. For some, it will feel like their, their legs are really heavy and they just can't drag themselves through. For others, their heart will race and they won't be able to stop it, calm it down and feel 
and stop feeling sick. It, it might be any of those things. It might be that they perceive it as a colour or that, that the only way they can tell you is if you tell them what other people have described it as and you can free them into something and then they give you something which is nowhere near what you learn as a psychiatrist. But you know then that if you give them treatment for something or if you talk them through something, you know where you're aiming because what's not okay is for a child to walk through life feeling that pressure on their chest or, or the heavy legs or the waking in the morning just raw with anxiety. You know how to measure the change. Mm -hmm. so, so when it comes to asking someone to work with you on risk, what services have done historically is to try and reduce the risk from the outside. So safety plan distress tolerance type strategies, make sure the windows are locked, make sure the tablets are locked away. And all of that is important. But actually, you don't ever change risk unless you understand what's fueling that risk. And I think young people now, the language of suicide is so prolific amongst them that it becomes a way of not only saying, I want to die, but also of saying, I'm suffering and it's intolerable. And it's really hard to tell the difference sometimes. And to a certain extent, the difference doesn't matter because suffering is awful and it needs to, we need to help people when they're suffering like that. The, the tragedy is that, that trying to pick out the ones and get services to the ones or even get the ones who need help to come to services is still a very inexact art and science and, and young people there's a there's a there has been a an increase in the number of young people taking their own lives and and it's utterly tragic um and it's really hard because the language is so prolific to know which ones which ones will do that mm. um it's really helpful and I, I really appreciate the comments about um change change requires acceptance uh, for people to explore an alternative way of being and processing the pain they're living with, they need to know a secure base mm. that they're operating from. Um, what would you say then to a parent who's listening to this and um, their child has just, for the first time perhaps, just said that they, they struggle regularly with suicidal thoughts? Um, what would be some of just your initial kind of advice to that person? So I think that... Um... I was going to answer that in one way and then God just popped something else in my head which is far more important. So the answer I would give is to learn how to validate your child because I could tell you about getting services, I could tell you about getting referrals, I could tell you about reading books, looking on websites and all of those are fantastic things to do but most parents will know that the services have not are not able to cover the need that is out there at the moment and so whilst we get ourselves to a point where we can provide enough resource for parents to be able to access it remotely and help their child directly, what I would say in the moment, at right at this moment, if your child is suffering and you don't know how to help them, I would say to learn how to validate your child. And validation is not that you validate that suicidal behaviour is okay or anything like that, but you validate that their feeling is understandable and valid. Um, as parents and teachers... And professionals, we know that, well, we now know how much we've been invalidating people around us. Um, it's something that comes really easily when you like to help people. So 
the habit will be um, person says, I can't believe this happened today. This is awful. It was just terrible. Urgh. Person next to them says, Oh, how are we going to solve it? Oh, gosh, that was, you know, well, you should, you should seek advice or you should take it higher or you should escalate it or you should take revenge or, um, oh, and it comes in with solutions and problem solving because that's a good thing to do, right? That's a constructive, helpful thing to do. The problem is in that moment by rushing to problem solving, which we do partly because we can't bear the person to be in pain. So it's partly a avoidance of our own. We, we squash that feeling and we try and squish it down. But the truth is that that kind of approach actually makes the feeling get bigger. And actually what's fantastic is if you actually stop in that moment, you notice what you're feeling in your own body. So you ground yourself. So you notice that as your child or your colleague or whatever has said all these things that you're tightening here or you're noticing that palms are a bit sweaty or whatever, just noticing that, not changing it, grounds you in the moment. And then you're able to turn to them, open your heart a bit to them and listen to them and hear them. And, and all you need to say is, that sounds really tough. You sound really angry or you must be really angry or that must be so frustrating for you. Or I can hear that you feel really desperate. That must be so tough. And in that moment, in that validation moment, you will notice and it takes practice. You have to. You have to try it. But the first time I ever tried it, I noticed a change in the atmosphere. It was incredible. And the person I was with just turned around and said, well, just started basically acknowledging their own part in the process and developing solutions right in front of me that were far better than anything I would have generated. The truth was they had the resilience and the ability to do that. And the credit will go to my 15-year-old son, Jed, for that. But... Um, he had the ability to generate solutions and I was busy to jump in with mine. What he really needed in that moment was me validate him and to say, that's understandable. What you feel is understandable. And we can do that to ourselves too. Like as a parent, when your child is desperate, like noticing that you feel such panic inside or, or whatever it is that you feel inside at that moment or that it brings back memories for you or that it's your worst nightmare or that... How can you cope with that because you're working too and you're struggling yourself? Maybe you're really anxious too and struggling. But just noticing in yourself what you feel in that moment will validate your own emotion. And in doing that, you'll notice that just gently it starts to drop a little. It might not completely go away, but just by noticing yourself, you validate yourself. And there's something about that process that as a Christian, I find immensely freeing because it it stops you for a second and allows God to speak or to soothe or to comfort and to bring wisdom and revelation into that moment. But even for non-Christians, just doing that process. And if you do it in your marriage, if you do it with work colleagues, it is life-changing. But the worst part of it, and I just need to warn people, is that you know when you become a Christian and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit convicts you of stuff, like doesn't condemn you, but kind of like it's like that little old-fashioned torch like old people will know about on the computer that used to when they were scanning files on the computer and the torchlight would go back and forth and it feels like the holy spirit's doing that when you first learn to validate you will notice how invalidating you are or your sorry how invalidating your interactions with others can be and how invalidating you are of yourself but it's just part of the process god 
boils up the dross before he gets rid of it. So if you find that you're noticing that there's lots of examples where you're being invalidating, just notice them, seek him mm. and try again. New mercies every morning. And, and, and he inhabits that and he takes it forward. And it's really exciting. Mm. If every relationship and every family was able to just validate once a day more than they ever did, mm. families would be changed overnight. Wow, that's a big statement. But I, know, uh, I think it it's is. brilliant. Uh, uh, and I've, I've heard people say before about the power of attention, actually giving someone attention yeah. without interruption yeah. and letting them be is a form of validation. But then also uh, yeah. unleashes their own creative power to find yes. solutions yes. without me having to infantilize them yes. by telling them or presuming I know what they need, which yeah. I think in an expert culture like ours. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're, we're guilty of thinking well we, you need to get help all the time Whereas actually yes. you've got a lot of resources god given you would say oh, to help um, um my daughter taught me when she would have friends who were troubled she said mum when i when they come to me with the trouble i will i will listen and then i say let's go to god with that and we sit and we pray together because then it doesn't land on her shoulders but also it stops you looking down and it starts you looking up and I guess when I first started talking about how I wanted to get free of my thoughts, get not be dominated by my thoughts so much, I guess that's sort of what I was trying to talk about is that when we're looking down, when we're focusing on the problem, when we're thinking about things and trying to devise our own solutions, it, our eyes are down. And we talk about this so much, don't we? we? We need our eyes up. And there's something about exactly what you say, paying attention in the moment to each other helps us pay attention to God too. But it's in itself just somebody putting their phone down and we, we all shudder when people people say like that I shudder <laughs> it's that bit where when somebody walks in they say in the marriage course don't they when some, someone comes in put your phone down turn your eyes and actually try and connect with them when they walk in the door <laughs> it's sad that we need to be trained and things like that isn't it <laughs> it is but we but but that is the biggest thing that affects teenagers at the moment is mm. the social social media is um, fabulous for a number of young people in terms of connecting and affirming them and mm. providing healthy input into their lives. So I'm not demonising it, but the dopamine hit that is devised, and I totally agree with um, the ruthless elimination of hurry on this, that, that the dopamine hit that they get when they get a like or a whatever else it is on other things, um, when they get that kind of connection with people online and it's instant and it's powerful, it's very... It's not as powerful as our Lord, but it's powerful in their lives. And I think it's really hard then for them to stop and be still. And I think it's no it's no accident that the 24-7 prayer movement is moving into a contemplative Lectio type phase where we actually stop and are still. And it's the antidote to what our world needs at the moment is to stop and be still and make choices about living Sabbath lives. That's a whole nother podcast. Oh, it's beautiful. It's Stop. brilliant. There's so Stop. much there. I think right. one, I guess, last comment or question before we um, we hit stop and no doubt try to record another one because there's so much good in here. <laughs> I'd love to just keep going. We'll get Christopher <laughs> back for part two. But um, you used the word grounding earlier. We're talking about your body. And I've heard that used before in in response to when we are flooded with very strong emotions. 
trying to reposition ourselves back in the room uh, in a conscious, aware, semi-sane state again is really hard. We all know what it's like when you're in a meeting and someone you know, riles you yeah. um, or your kids do something and it just, you just your blood boils instantly, very quickly. Yeah. It can be very hard. And so help us understand what, what is grounding and yeah. how can that be a tool that can help all of us, um, whether parent or child who's struggling? Okay, yeah. This is kind of like, again, back to the penicillin analogy because it's all stuff that God's set up for us to be ways of us existing in, in shalom, in in connection um, with ourselves and with other people. And so our um, sensory systems are something that is really... Um, our knowledge and understanding of it is coming alive in mental health services now, led by occupational therapists who are my favourite ever professional. Um, it's a great plug for OTs. Yeah. I don't stop plugging OTs. I can't. I can't wait for the world to be run by OTs. But um, yeah. So um, so the idea being that um, what sometimes happens when big stuff happens is that we disconnect from our environment and we disconnect from our sensations. And there's something very powerful about reconnecting with those. And in fact. Um, the 24 seven um, call to spending time with God is um, as I enter prayer now, I pause to be still, to breathe slowly and to reconnect my scattered senses in the presence of God. And that to me is exactly what we're trying to do in a grounding, albeit I wouldn't be allowed to say about God if I was grounding someone. So the simplest way to ground someone is, is to speak calmly and slowly it's really important not to touch them unless they're your child and you know that that really works for them. But in general, what you want to be doing is just speaking really slowly, getting down on their level, wherever they're seated and seated or standing um, and give enough space. They don't feel crowded. And then you want them to gently help them to notice their surroundings. So you might I think there's something online that says, you know, name five things that you can see and four things that you can hear and you can work through the senses like that. So you could say, um, so when I'm on the ward, it will be, um, can you smell what they're cooking for dinner? Clearly not if somebody's having trouble eating. I won't mention that one. But um, can you feel the hard floor underneath your bottom? Um, can you feel um, can, can you feel your hands resting um, on your on your legs? Can you um, hear the clock ticking? It doesn't really matter what you're connecting them with. It just matters that it's in the room, audible or palpable, and they can connect with it. And just by doing that, what you're allowing their brain to do is move out of its fight or flight, um, move out of its sort of traumatised state, if you like, that acute traumatic moment when they're really, really flooded with stuff, and move back into a place where they're connected and we know that, for example, if you have a dog and you they've done a study, I don't even know whether it's replicated, but they got a dog and they sat the dog next to the, the child next to the dog and they tracked their heart rates and the child's heart rate synchronised with the dog's heart rate. So there's something about sitting in an environment with someone who is not feeling grounded and being grounded yourself, that they will synchronise with you and be able to... stabilize using the connection that's happening so it's not you couldn't just pipe it as oh, you could have a little podcast that says see five things and smell four things or whatever but it wouldn't be the same as what you get in a connection with someone who's grounded so that bit about validation you kind of need to ground yourself before you ground someone else so to do that people think that they need to 
change the internal state. You don't need to worry about that. You just need to notice your internal state. And in validating that, it will shrink of its own accord. So if when you see your child who is escalating and really struggling and you feel yourself tight, and as I said before, you notice that, you just notice that. And in that moment, you will then ground and you will then be able to ground them. And then there are all sorts of stuff that you can teach them, like breathing in for four seconds and out for more, which will... That's a whole other podcast, really. But basically, the God designed us with the fight or flight system, but he also designed us with the opposite, which is called the parasympathetic. And and it's it's beautiful because it does the exact opposite to fight or flight, but you can actually trick your body into triggering that relaxed state. So if you breathe in for four and out for more, you will trigger the parasympathetic and your pulse will drop and you will feel grounded in that moment. Wow. So there's all sorts of whole other... It is a whole other podcast and we will have to come back. I know, I know. Because God designed us to, like, to be able to be, like, just because we're trying to subject our bodies to the world we're in right now and try and live at that pace, actually, if we Mm. are still and know that he is God and we make the most of what he's given us and we understand what abundance he's given us just in ourselves, the way he's designed us, and then even more so in connection with other people. Like, it's a whole world of discovery. And when kids get, and families get a sense that there's an understandability about it, that there is a design to it, that there is stuff that makes sense to them, that resonates with their experience, that acceptance, that you've got you've got me, you understand me, happens. And then the change happens. And as a beautiful OT I work with currently says, I'm not interested in paths for care, like pathways for care, like an anxiety pathway, a depression pathway. I'm much more curious to follow the person, and I'm shamelessly quoting her, and see where their path goes. Because the truth is, just like the solution that my son came up with, it was far better than anything I would have designed for him because it came out of his creativity, freed. And it's the same with parents and carers. When they have family therapy now, nobody's trying to tell them how to be a perfect family that nobody's judging them. What they're trying to do is help them feel accepted and secure enough, but also recognise that there are other ways to look at stuff. And in that wiggle and that little tiny little bit of change, they can release the stuff they have in them, which is beautiful Mm. and designed perfectly for their family. Who knew it? That will get them out of so many of the scrapes they're in. And help them do different and help them break into generational patterns and all those sorts of things. And so we become facilitators. We become as mental health services. And this is the sort of service that I'm involved in trying to design at the moment is we become co-facilitators. We become part of team. We join a family and a young person, a team. And, And our job is not to take the child away and make them better and give them back. It's to empower families and young people to find their solutions and trust themselves and to trust that there are solutions that have been designed mm. by somebody bigger than us, really, <laughs> i.e. God. And But even if they can't know God or don't know God at this point, just for them to know that it isn't about an imperial service telling them how to do things properly. It's about us having the honour and being humbled and coming alongside them and going, you're flipping amazing. Because <laughs> I haven't met a non-amazing person in my work yet. The young people I work with humble me every day because they'll go again and they'll go again and they'll trust and take risks 
and they taught me more than I've ever learned in the textbook. But we get the honour of coming alongside. And so to families who are out there struggling with suicidal youth and teenagers and stuff, I would I would say no, that you have so much more for mm. your child than you would realise. And you are the best parent for that child. And reach out. And if you're a Christian, grab hold of God. Even if you're not, mm. grab hold of God. Because he has such provision for you in this season. Wow. Thank you so much. Such an inspiring um, and really hope-filled time, particularly a lot of your comments about the way our brains change and the reason we as parents can have genuine hope for our young people, rather than there's a lot of terrifying headlines and terrifying realities, but it's a really helpful place to, to emphasise the hope that we have in the biology that God has given us. Yeah. Um, and so thank you so much for your time and for being able to talk to us about this. No, it's great to be here. Thank you. I hope it was in any way understandable, then that would be a miracle. Thank you, God. <laughs>